Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. What kind of client system gives you the most anxiety? For many MFTs, whether it's due to a lack of their training or where they are at the stage of their career, they feel vastly unprepared to deal with kids, small children, in the context of play therapy. How can you truly be a family therapist without being able to be experiential, to integrate play, to work with different parts of the system, including the child system, the parental system, putting it all together? So when I think of integrating the fields of play therapy and family therapy, I only think of one person, somebody I've been wanting to interview for a long time as part of our Pioneer series. That's Dr. Ileana Gill. Ileana is a founding partner of the Gill Institute for Trauma Recovery and Education. That's a group private practice in Fairfax, Virginia, where she currently works as a senior clinical and research consultant. She is an AMFT approved supervisor and clinical fellow, as well as a registered play therapist, supervisor, and registered art therapist. She is also a Circle of Security Certified Parent Educator, a Level 2 TheraPlay provider, and has participated and completed a two-year individual certification process with Dr. Bruce Perry. She is also the director of the Starbright Training Institute for Child and Family Play Therapy where she and her Gill Institute colleagues provide specialized trainings on an array of topics involving trauma, attachment, and treatment options with an integration of expressive therapies, meaning art, sand, and play, with family therapy. In the last three decades, she has directed two child sexual abuse treatment programs in Northern Virginia and continues her work in the field of child abuse prevention and treatment, which will she speak of today. She has served on the Board of Directors, the American Professional Society on Abused Children, and the National Resource Center on Child Sexual Abuse. She is also the former president of the Association of Play Therapy and received their Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011. She has written numerous chapters, journal articles, and books on child abuse and related topics and has participated in many educational videotapes that feature her work. Please join me in welcoming a true family play therapy pioneer, Dr. Ileana Gill, to the AMFT podcast. I'm so pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast by someone I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. Play therapy pioneer and integrator of family and play therapy, Ileana Gill. Uh, Ileana is so happy to have you with us. The first question is always, how did you get interested in working with children in play therapy? Yes, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here also. I think that the earliest interest I had in children was when I was going to the California Graduate School of Family Psychology in San Rafael, California. 
we had the opportunity to see very famous family therapists, some of the pioneers that would come and do demonstrations. Um, this was back in the late 70s. And it was fascinating to watch how often the family therapist felt really comfortable with adolescents and they did, you know, circular questioning and sculpting and different things like that. But as soon as there were kids, maybe under the age of seven, <laughs> I noticed this reluctance, or maybe it was a, a little bit of just not knowing exactly how to engage with children that were young. And so oftentimes the therapists would give some paper and markers to children and they'd sort of set them aside the kids would be drawing or kind of playing with, with a stuffed animal or something like that, while the therapist then did the family therapy demonstration with the adults. And that was very interesting to me because I kept looking at the kids and I kept thinking, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what's going on with them. And oftentimes after those sessions, if in fact the kids had drawn things, I would go over and look at it. And I found them to be so interesting and the drawings would often depict something related to the family and the family therapy process. So that was something that got sparked really early on in terms of um, watching these young children in some ways be excluded. When I started working with families, I thought it would be really important to somehow figure out how to invite the kids into the grown-up stuff, because they were certainly such an important part of it, and to do it in such a way that wasn't necessarily the adult world, the verbal world, but to see if there were some playful ways that I could invite them in, and then get to watch the families interacting with each other in alternate ways than just talking. And so this became a passion of mine. And because of that, I decided that I really needed to get more training in ways to invite kids. And that's how I started exploring things like sand therapy and play therapy and art therapy and anything that really provided alternative ways of expression and that didn't place the demands of the adult world on children. And of course, as I started doing this, I found that not only were the kids really receptive to this, but oftentimes the adults d discovered a part of themselves maybe that weren't as visible most of the time. And so I had some really interesting experiences with people initially, by the way, showing that they weren't really excited about what we were gonna do or they were confused by the fact that I was asking them to stay in the session with the children and that we were going to do a variety of different activities. Now, you, you were coming of age here in, again, the golden age of family therapy where, yes, these pioneers did these live dazzling demos in your right. You see Mnuchin or Satir, and they're working with teenagers or adolescents, and sometimes the more the merrier. But, yes, the you saw early on the kind of missing piece and, and the smaller, younger children kind of cast us off the side in a drawing. Were you interested in working with kids before that, or was it seeing this need that really caused you to be interested in them? You know, I think like many of us, I was interested in children, but I hadn't been trained by anyone. And even looking back at schooling, formal schooling I had, a lot of times we got child development, child psychopathology, but there was very little uh, in terms of 
just spending time with kids and how do you engage them and how do you keep them interested in what you're doing and so I was interested but I didn't feel competent and I think that's what happens to a lot of family therapists they they just don't feel like they have enough direction on how to proceed so I was always um, I mean I've always liked kids from the time I was very very young Uh, as a matter of fact I had an experience in high school where we were asked to go into, I lived in Washington, D.C. at that time, and we were asked to go with the nuns to the families where they were going to bring things and to spend time with the parents. And we, as the students, volunteered to sit outside and play with the kids. And I guess that was an earlier place that I found that it was really neat to be able to connect with kids in this other way. And then after that, again, as I said, I I wanted to develop this competence, and so I had to go out and look for that because it wasn't readily provided. So I'm curious about, yeah, how you went out and forged that path and really became, like I said, a pioneer in integrating these two fields. But I'm curious what you mentioned a second. Why do you, why do you think it is, and the research confirms this, that it's relatively uncommon among family therapists to get training in working with smaller, younger children? Yeah, I, I wish that changed. I wish that was the case. But... I think it's a reluctance to feel comfortable with children. I think that children are seen almost as a different species by some. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't know, or they're seen as difficult or too spontaneous or uh, difficult to control. I know I've talked to a lot of family therapists about this and they say, oh my gosh, anytime their kid's in the room, just they lose their mind. They just start you know, destroying things. And, you know, I don't know how to contain them. I don't know what to do with them. So there may be this view that smaller children are somehow difficult to manage. That may be a part of it. But again, I'm not sure why it isn't taught with more frequency. And again, it may just be people who have never developed that sense of comfort with children. So they, they can't really do too much teaching about it because they haven't had the experience. They also don't understand that the, their anxiety or lack of comfort stops them from seeing the potential benefits. What, what do you think are the benefits from bringing play therapy and family therapy together as you've done throughout your career? I think that it just creates so many more possibilities. I will say a little bit about my career. I've worked mostly with child abuse and neglect. And so a lot of families that were referred to me were court mandated. So I don't like to use the word resistance. I try to talk about the hesitancy or ambivalence that people bring into therapy, but they would come in and really obviously not want to be there, and they do not want to participate, and they definitely don't want to be answering a lot of questions. And so I I noticed really early on that somehow surprising families and doing something they didn't expect would break a little bit into that tension of being there and not wanting to be there. And so, for example, I would I started working with balloons, I can't tell you how many years ago, but just always felt it was great to have a balloon nearby or a basket of balloons. And just to simply say to the family, you know, just for a few minutes, let's try to keep this balloon up in the air. And then I might bring a second balloon or a third balloon and then just watch how they manage as it gets a little bit more <laughs> difficult to keep all these things going at the same time. But what happens immediately is that physiologically they change. They start breathing differently. They're moving their body. 
And all that tension that they bring physically with them starts to kind of relax. And so after doing that, and you know, you can get really active and there's a little bit of calisthenics going on there. When you sit down, you're just in a very different frame of mind. And then I would say, I know you don't want to be here. I hate to do anything when I've been told I have to do it. So I'm really sorry about that, but I really want to make this useful to you. And then we move on. But now the entire family has had a different kind of experience together and they're in a different frame of receptivity. Playfulness is not just for kids. Playfulness really actually uh, gets those endorphins going and it can make people more present, more available. The energy changes in the room. So I started experimenting with a lot of different things and it was great to watch that people started to actually see each other differently. So a dad who was kind of mean, but you know, he put on a gorilla puppet on his hand and the gorilla puppet really just wanted people to like him and come play with him. That was such an important thing to do because now these kids left with a new image of yes, there's a gorilla and sometimes he's, he's irritable, but underneath the gorilla really just wants people to come find him and play with him. And so changing perspectives in that very concrete at times and also metaphorical way, I thought was a great way of having interactions that were novel and that could actually cause people to have a different experience of each other. It's so wonderfully said, and I'm sure you have you know countless stories like that. So we talk about maybe therapist resistance and not wanting to be in the room with little kids because they don't feel comfortable. And then there's also the the client resistance. My favorite stories is the, the parent that drops their kid off and says, fix my kid. I don't really want to be part of this, but fix me. And we see a lot of that, you know, just work with my kid. So how do you, with a parent that maybe doesn't necessarily think systemically or has gotten a referral or wants you to work individually with their child and you see it as this interaction and the need for the parent, not just to give you feedback on what's going on with the kid, but to be part of the work, to be experiential, to play. How do you sell or how would a family play therapist sell the needing the direct involvement of the parent to a, a skeptical client? Yeah, and I'll answer that in two ways. The first is that I have always invited during an intake with the parents, I've always invited them to do something playful. So sometimes I might just say, if they say something like, it's really hard to describe, I might say, you know, I have a whole bunch of little miniatures over here. And I'm wondering if rather than try to put it into words, you could go and pick a few things that best show what you're trying to tell me. And so that's symbol work. And we cross that bridge really early on. Or I might say to them, if they're struggling to really kind of identify what might be useful for them, I might ask them to come to a sand tray and just see what they can show me about what it is they're looking for. And so the invitation to do that is my first attempt at getting them to understand that this isn't quote, just play the way they think of it. This is some pretty serious work that we can do together. So that's really important. And then the second part is I always describe myself as a family play therapist. And so I say to them, you know, I am happy to meet with your child. I can see you have a lot of concerns and I'm happy to get to know the child by meeting with them alone. Uh, but I want you to know there are going to be times I'm going to ask 
maybe a sibling to come in. I'm going to ask you all to come in. And I really understand how important you are to your child. And so the best thing you can do so that I can help your child is to help me help your child. And so there are going to be opportunities for you to come in and do some activities together and spend time with him in the usual ways as well as in different ways and just see what we can do together to help this problem resolve. Those are primarily the two ways that, that I work. I really want them to know how important they are to me to help solve the problem with the child. And then matter of fact, I'm gonna invite different groups of you to come in and I always end with family therapy where we take a look at what we've done together and what they're taking with them and uh, what's worked or hasn't worked or what more they might need. So, so there are always ways at the end that we do closure with everyone. And intermittently, I might do parent-child work or couples therapy or sibling work or whatever it takes, but just with that understanding with the family that everyone has to help me so that I can help the child to the best of my ability. Model it both experientially at the beginning by doing something playful in that initial interaction and you're also in your words framing yourself as the family therapist that you are going to work with different parts of the system at different times so it is embedded into every core of how you begin there and by doing that it is modeled from the beginning so it's not something down the line when you would need access to a parent it is a disruption to the task of therapy because it's modeled from the very beginning and i think that's that's how we should train therapists. And I always think as, as being a trainer, in addition to perhaps MFT programs not being as comfortable with child interventions, it, in some ways it works so well for training because we are experiential people. Let's go and do an activity together. Let's, let's learn how to do that, to be playful. It seems like such a natural extension. It's hard to imagine working without with families without being experiential in some way, no matter what your orientation is. What do you think the difference is between people that identify themselves as primarily individual play therapist versus family play therapist? Yeah, you know, when you were talking, I, I did want to say that just as you see that reluctance with family therapists to include children, I find that with play therapists often as well. It's gotten better over the last, I would say, the last decade. But before that, child-centered play therapists in particular really want to create a play therapy environment that's very private with the child. And there's a certain reluctance. I've talked to so many play therapists who say, as soon as the parents come in the room, I just, you know, changes everything. I don't know exactly what to do. I feel awkward. I feel like, you know, the child changes and the parent changes. And, and I don't know exactly how to proceed. So the training I've done has been on both sides. And there's been some wonderful types of play therapy, like TheraPlay, where from the outset, they, they're very clear it's dyadic work. But you have to go get specialized training in TheraPlay. That isn't something that everybody learns about. So it's been a process with both sides. And I think the individual play therapist, again, has a discomfort being visible to the parent and a discomfort with exactly what to do with the parent in the room. But as I said, in addition to that, filial therapy has been wonderful in terms of helping the therapist teach the parent to become a play therapist to their child and have these useful play therapy sessions. And there's been other models. CPRT is another one, child-parent relationship therapy. 
Yes, all of those are, are wonderful. As you were telling your journey, so you, you watch and you see the gap, then you start experimenting with sand trays. And again, you were really on the front lines of this. How much were you just experimenting, forging a path on your own versus drawing inspiration from some of these other sources? Well, when I first started out, some of these other sources were not as available in terms of just being programs that were out there doing training. So I remember just trying to find every possible play therapy workshop. I remember I went to some early Gestalt play therapy with Violet Oaklander in California. Uh, Gisela de Domenico was a sand therapist in California. But these were new kind of approaches and definitely not used with families. And so everything that I took I was taking with the notion of how do I apply this to a larger system? How do I make the invitation to a number of people, not just one? And then when they start working with whatever it is they're working, whatever expressive technique they're working with, what do I do after afterwards? You know, what how do I engage them so that we deepen the metaphor or deepen the expressive therapy, whatever it is? And so that all was a process of trying to explore, experiment, and then take workshops. And then somewhere around the mid-80s, I think, the Play Therapy Association was formed. And then we had annual conferences. And now, at all of those conferences, you began to see all these different programs and innovations that were starting everywhere. So the creativity just went from there. But again, there was a reluctance to really look at, quote, family play therapy as a distinctive model that, that where you could really bridge these worlds and get people on both ends of that, play therapists and family therapists, comfortable with the notion of having a room full of people as opposed to just a single client. <laughs> I sometimes think that play therapy is a collection of techniques that help the child to express each other better and family play therapy to communicate with their parent and vice versa versus uh, a more theoretical model. Do, do you view it as a series of techniques that is kind of atheoretical or are there clear theories that guide how family play therapists work? Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about play therapy, there are these foundational theories, psychoanalytic and gestalt and developmental and child-centered or Rogerian. So there are these models and it's been become very important as we do training and supervision with play therapists, as in every other field, I think, to get them to choose a lane and then to be sure that it's consistent with their activity in the room. And so that's a lot of when I'm working in supervision with people, I'm saying, so what is the theoretical model right now? And I want to see that what they're doing, actually, I could visibly distinguish as the model that they're talking about. And so that becomes part of the, the training process at this point. So there are these foundational theories. And then in addition to that, there's been in the last decade, I would say, a movement towards trans-theoretical approaches in play therapy. And that's pretty much where I land. I, I just try to go into meeting a family with the point of view that they're all unique and different from each other and that there is not one single model that's going to apply to everybody. And so then from that perspective, what I try to do is to develop a response based on the family in front of me. 
And do I need to be more directive or less directive? Do they use metaphor on their own? Are they usually playful? Are they really rigid and structured? And so you overlay the, the systems theory work on there, and you try to understand the family system, but also the nature of all of these individuals in terms of the family they've constructed. And so it's, it's interesting to develop that and to uh, continue to, I, I mean, I work on this constantly. People always say, what kind of play therapist are you? And I say, it depends on the child I'm working with. So the trans theoretical works for me. Some people call it integrative or prescriptive therapy, but you're trying to do what's going to work for the family that's in front of you. Exactly. You're preaching to the choir. I often say on the show that the, the client system has enough problems. Trying to fit to your way of working shouldn't be another one. You, you should be flexible enough to adapt to them as that's what good therapists do no matter what they're theoretical orientation or professional affiliation is I couldn't agree with it more. Sometimes what you have a lack in your MFT training programs, you get as far as your field experience or you get in your first job setting. So we have a lot of young clinicians listening to this podcast. So if they are just starting to build their family play therapy repertoire, what are essentials, essential tools, uh, uh, resources, what you need in your play therapy room that every play therapist that's starting out should have in their starter pack. I think that um, just a couple of things before I get into the room. I think that a knowledge of child development is really important so that some of the interventions really have to be designed with all the developmental levels in mind in front of you. You don't want to lose the child or the children. So that's a really important piece. And I think attachment theory is really important just to understand the nature of how people are connecting with each other, um, the styles that they have of connecting with each other. And again, for us to be open to whatever style they bring to us, but also at the same time, try to enrich things. So maybe they've gotten into some really bad habits in terms of how they connect, and it's finding a way to introduce something that's new. In terms of the play therapy office, a lot of family therapists actually say to me, I could never do that. You have to buy so much equipment. (laughs) And they're a little bit overwhelmed by the number of things that most traditional play therapists have in their room. So this is really... I, I think a little bit dependent on those variables of how much investment you want to make in this financially, but also just in terms of your own use of all these materials. But I think for the most part, you always want to have something that's art-based because that's a natural thing that kids do. Earlier, we were talking about introducing things to the family. I think also just the concept that they're going to rediscover parts of themselves that maybe haven't been activated for a while. I can't tell you how many people, adults, um, grandparents, they leave a session, they go, that was amazing. I can't tell you the last time I drew a picture. Or, wow, I'm such a better artist than I thought I would be. Or something like that. Or I can't believe I created this, you know. And it's lovely to watch people have that rediscovery of this creativity and imagination that we all have. It's just we put it away after a while. So I wanted to say that. So art is really important. And then I would have some symbols. Whether you start doing sand therapy or not, that's a whole area to be trained in and to learn about, but you can have, you know, like a little array of miniatures, just maybe the animal kingdom. So you have 
prehistoric animals and farm animals and zoo animals and uh, domestic animals, and you just have them available. And oftentimes people will go and pick things and they can show things about themselves. I mean, I, I developed this thing called the family play genogram. And this was a way that we use the traditional genogram. And after it's drawn, you just say to people, I'd like you to find something that shows your thoughts and feelings about everybody in the family, including yourself. And it's a very simple directive, but now this genogram comes to life, or genogram, sorry, but it comes to life. And suddenly the dad that the teenager can't find words to describe is now a brick wall, or the mom has a fire hydrant or has a fire extinguisher. So there are ways in which you can again, enliven this process that people struggle with verbally by allowing them to show you. And that requires very few little things. To be honest, of late, because I've been moving around a lot, I don't have my collection of miniatures. I just go outside in nature and I pick rocks and pebbles and nuts and pine cones. And people can do a play genogram out of that as well you know, by picking prickly things or things that are blooming or whatever it may be. But it's a wonderful form of expression that you can begin to give people opportunities with. If you work with teenagers, the most common thing is, I don't want to talk about it, you know. So how's it going? You know, so it's so monosyllabic. And so I say to kids, you know, I don't want you to tell me. I want you to go find something that shows what that problem is that you're having today. And I don't want to talk about it. I want you to find things you think might be at least possible first steps to try to address that problem. And then you're on a different level of connection and communication. And people are often then sort of um, uh, stimulated to then maybe you know, do something verbal with that. So that's an important piece too, just some kind of symbol stuff that can be around. And I think puppets are wonderful. I, I've been a real proponent of family puppet work or individual puppet work, but sometimes everyone feels a little, a little bit like they can embody the puppet and they can speak through the puppet and you can have some wonderful interactions in that way as well. I love how you said that you take something, if you didn't bring it up, I was gonna mention, you take something established in family therapy, like a genogram, but you know, that's information that would usually an adult would give or an older teenager, but by using symbols to go with it, you transform it and it, it, it really comes alive. And that is for me, one of your skills as far as taking traditional things making them experiential, bridging the gap, normalizing play, everything we've talked about so far. Do you think that the COVID, well, I'll say this, many people have been getting lots of telehealth training during COVID. And I'm many people listening to this may be burnt out. Well, I, yes, I understand the rules now and the platforms, but how do I do what is so crucial, being in the room, creating connection, facilitating play, how do I do that through a computer screen, Eliana? <laughs> this has been a challenge, I think, for everyone. And um, there, there's been a lot of creativity going on in terms of people learning to engage with kids in a different way. I mean, it is better than nothing. 
I think that showing up and being present to the child and the family is really important. But I'll tell you, it really lends itself to a lot of dyadic parent-child work as well as family therapy. And in some circumstances, we're having more access to family members now than we ever did before. And so it's been interesting, for example, to do like a scavenger hunt hunts with kids or to have the parents participate with you in preparing the child for family play therapy. Like I was saying a minute ago, I've asked people to go out and collect things and just have a basket with all these different kinds of things that kids can use. And the same with cutting out figures from magazines, just doing it as a family activity where everybody sits down and you have a bunch of magazines and everybody cuts things out and and then you collect those. And, and in a way, it's such a concrete way to support the child in the work that they do. And then, of course, coming back and doing some family play therapy with with uh, all the family members. So I think it's been really interesting. In some ways, it's been an easy transition because we're used to that and we're used to kind of being present while others are playing. And so we can set up a situation and have a directive and ask the parents to bring in certain things. And at times we're mailing things to kids for them to have. And a lot of us have gotten a lot better with technology. There are all these games online. Someone named Jessica, Dr. Jessica Stone, invented a virtual sand tray, which is really amazing. And so you don't have that sensory feel of the sand or anything, but kids get to pick and create these images in the sand. And then like, let's say they pick a little dragon, that dragon actually can move and can fly off the sand tray. (laughs) I mean, it's really remarkable. So it's been exciting in some ways and definitely fatiguing in other ways. I think people are establishing routines now with kids. The hardest, I think, is the new clients who come in because you have to develop a relationship over the computer. But we do a lot of movement. We have people doing activities together with puppets and things like that. So again, my goal is always to energize the family because they're coming in fatigued, they're depressed, they might have been up to the point they got into the therapy office. They may have been in conflict with each other. The parents are trying to work some of them. They have the kids underfoot, which they may or may not be used to. There's all kinds of risk factors going on right now in terms of safety issues for children. So we're paying attention to a lot of different levels, uh, trying to be supportive to the parents and to support the parent-child relationship. It's been very interesting as we're going forward and more and more Play therapists are developing books and, and, you know, coloring books and even miniatures. Some of the new miniatures that are coming out are interesting of like the actual COVID and what it might look like. And it's just very interesting to watch. (laughs) You know, I've been experimenting with this during the pandemic and the advantages of the reframes for me is these kids, they're digital natives anyway. They are used to working through the computer. It's not that hard of sell for them. I think, yes, establishing an alliance when you haven't met someone face-to-face is more challenging. But the reframe is like you get to see, we haven't mentioned this yet, you get to see the family and the kid in their natural environment. You're going into their home and that is where play takes place. So you get to to coach them, I think, in their natural environment. And I think it also lends well 
to these, like we were mentioning earlier, these filio therapy techniques where you're coaching the parent and teaching them how to play with their children in their natural environment. So while I never would have said a, a year ago I would have preferred this way of doing it, 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 it is. It allows, plays into the creativity you need to have as a play therapist. If you're passionate about your work like you are, I'm sure that that energy can transfer through the screen. But yeah, I, I feel that uh, obviously it, it's, it's going to be something that as we adapt as a psychotherapy profession in general and specifically in family play therapy, we, we have to, to adapt to and work within our constraints, as I say. You know, another question a lot of people wanted me to ask you about the notion of directed play versus non-directive play. How, again, in reading that family and deciding when to be more direct and when to pull back and just let them do that, how do you decide when to give a very structured activity versus, versus a non-directive, non-directive play? play? I tend to start most therapy with kids uh, using child-centered play therapy. I really like to watch what they do if they have that open invitation to follow their curiosity. You know, what are you interested in? What are you drawn to? I mean, there's a room full of stuff. You know, where do they go? Allowing them to set the pace, taking, taking a lot of the demands off of them for verbal communication, and just letting them kind of wander around and that's relationally speaking too. They can come towards you and away from you. They can ask for help or not ask for help. They can turn their back to you and do something in private that I don't need to see. And I just take note of that. So the child-centered play therapy, I think is really useful in many, many ways. And there's some kids that I continue child-centered therapy with the whole course of treatment because they're using it to its optimum function and it's working for them and you're beginning to see changes in their behavior or their self-esteem changing or their ability to relate to their parents differently whatever and it's all happening through child-centered play so that's great to see however there's some particular problems that need to be addressed directly and the child-centered folks um probably wouldn't agree with that. They would say every problem needs to be, can be addressed non-directively. But I've seen some kids, for example, with sexual behavior problems or kids who are hitting or biting or hurting. And yes, you want to provide a nurturing, kind environment for them. But at some point, if, if they can't sleep, let's say, or if they're pulling down their their brother's pants and touching them in their private parts at home and at school or whatever it may be, at some point there is an issue that we need to probably take a look at. So the shift then for me is I say, you know how we've been meeting and you've pretty much decided what goes on and what we do. And and I might say, and I've gotten to know this about you or that about you. And then I'll also say, I also just want to make sure that we address the fact or we pay attention to the fact that your mom tells me that this problem that brought you into therapy is still there. So I'm going to make a little change. Half the time you get to decide what we're going to do in here. And the second half, I'm going to bring something here for us to work on that's related to that issue that your mom is concerned about or that is causing you some upset too because the teachers are mad at you or your parents are mad at you. And we make that little deal. And then I say to them, but you can decide if you want to start 
with the work part or if you want to start with just what we've been doing. And then they get to pick. And so that's how I've always thought of it. If I come, if it becomes really clear to me quickly that we have an attachment issue, then I'm going to probably start inviting the parent in to dyadic sessions as quickly as I can because that needs to get looked at for everything else to begin to fall in place. And so that's how I make decisions about what I'm going to do with the child, whether it's going to be more or less directive. It gives them choice and it also models that you are going to help them. You're going to honor where they're at, but help them with their specific issue. And it also, again, as we've been saying this whole hour, models that you're going to incorporate the family. What a what a wonderful way to put that. Another question we get a lot is when you're working with a young person and they're like teetering right between these developmental stages that they, they're not quite ready for straight on talk therapy. But sometimes if you engage them in something experiential, that's where the greatest conversation comes from. So how do you work with kids that maybe developmentally kind of teetering, they, they, they might feel like they're too old for play therapy, but they're not ready for traditional therapy. And I think that luckily for us, the play therapy community has, has got all these really interesting things that are for teenagers, but I think storytelling and metaphor cards and art therapy, as long as it's done away from all the child toys. So <laughs> sometimes what I do is I'll have a teen corner. And, and uh, I say to the teenager, I might say, now this is where I work with teens, young adults, and adults. And so I kind of make that differentiation and I'll invite them to that space or I'll bring out these metaphor cards. The Joyce Mills did this beautiful butterfly wisdom cards and teenagers just love that. So we'll do something along those lines and I try to environmentally invite them into the area of the room where I work with people who are more adult. Now, having said that, (laughs) a lot of the kids that I work with, even though they come in in a 16 or 17-year-old body, there's really a much younger part of them that's actually in play. In other words, that's the part that gets irritable or gets depressed or gets worried or gets concerned or whatever it may be. So sometimes I just say to them, you know, just... I know that there's a lot of little kid stuff in here. Don't pay any attention to it. But what I wanted to invite you to do was the sand therapy, which is for older kids and adults. And then I just kind of have them in the same room. And it's really amazing to me how many times these big kids will pick like a doll to feed (laughs) or they're interested in the dollhouse or whatever it may be. And there's something evocative about toys that just transport you sometimes. I know every time I go into a toy store, there's something there that I go, oh my gosh, I haven't seen that in forever. Just recently, it was those little things you put on your fingers and then they get stuck and you can't pull them apart. (laughs) And I had this experience of being in the toy store going, oh my gosh, I can't get these off. And I had to go to the cashier and say, okay, I'm stuck. (laughs) And I ended up buying that because it was so funny, but it reminded me of my brother and, so it, it has that evocative part to it that I think we sometimes overlook. And that takes over sometimes when kids are allowed to be in these. 
yes, allowed to be in these spaces. And as you said, allowed to choose, right? So there's so many options. So they can choose and they're not being judged by the plate therapist what they choose. You know, when you said that, it did trigger nostalgia in me. I'm 43, so I'm a child of the 80s. But And they're still around. I think you don't remember color forms? Well, color forms will let you put on the vinyl these different characters and you know, and, and you can use those in, in play therapy so effectively. But I, as you were saying that I did have a nostalgic moment, the kid in me, you, you are so humble and you're still doing this work. When I've interviewed these model developers, the common factor is the passion they still have. They're not doing it for the notoriety or they're not doing it even for the financial gain. They're doing it because they genuinely care. It, it, they still love doing the work after all this time. So what keeps you vital? And I also, I mean, you should be, and I know you are proud of the Gill Institute, but I want you to tell us a little bit about that too. But what keeps you vital? You know, I think I'm a perpetual learner. And so I I have so enjoyed learning kind of new ideas. And again, what happens with me is as soon as I begin to learn something, I want to apply it in this in these particular ways. So one thing leads to another and there's creativity and things like that. And I love mentoring. I love mentoring young folks and uh, exposing them to this and helping them feel comfortable in their own bodies when they start playing with children or when they start playing with families and, and giving them a sense of competence in these areas. So that's what I love the most. And just want to make sure that that I say that I am currently semi-retired. So I'm still trying to construct what that means, but I do a lot of teaching and training and supervising. And the Gill Institute was a dream I've always had of pulling together very like-minded people who would be invested in helping individuals and, and children in particular through traumatic experiences. And so it's now, I think, in its 11th year and uh, we have about 14 therapists who work there. And the cases have gotten more complex and, and things uh, sometimes are just unbelievable in terms of the, I don't know, the kind of distress that people can be in and the kinds of cruelty actually that, that people can inflict on each other, but, but also the hope and, and the possibilities that exist of helping families get healthier and helping kids get well. And you know, for me, working with the children has always been the easy part. Working with the families in some in some ways has been easy too, but sometimes it's the system that becomes the hard thing to work with, you know, that decisions are being made outside of the family system by people who don't necessarily think of a developmental process or the impact of separation on children and so many other things that that are so vital to the work that we do. So, so I don't know, I feel I'm in my 70s now. So I've had a really long, wonderful career. And I just get so excited by the things I, I learn, the new things I start getting involved in and, and just studying things and getting deeper. All the social justice issues that have been discussed over the years, I think almost are culminating right now. So I've been really exploring that whole issue about having read the book on how to become anti-racist. It's really important that this be an active process and not something that we just sit back. So in that light, thinking about the context of children coming in and families coming into therapy, and that sometimes we've waited for them to bring up issues around race and differences as well as as similarities. But I really feel at this point that we need to take an active stance and we really need to 
as that book implies by Ibram, we need to take a stronger stand. And so if kids are playing out themes that are obviously racist or the parents are making racist remarks about their children in foster care being raised by people who are different than they are and, the, and therefore they, they are, are so harsh, we need to stand up and say, wait, let's, let's take a look at that. Um, I had a little, little child who threw uh, Asian people in the trash. And I was like, I was so taken by that, that these were, and, and he said it. He said, these people are dirty. And I thought to myself, how? So I, I you know, reflected on what he was doing. But then after a little while, you go, where did this come from? Kids don't just suddenly become racist. And then I said, you know, let's, let's, let's you know, those little ones that are in the trash, let's, let's see how they're feeling about being in the trash. And so I started that dialogue with them and then eventually said, where did this idea come from that Chinese people are dirty? That's what my mom says. And so now, okay, now we've got racism in the family. And so that, you know, you know intuitively that comes from somewhere. Some, what was that song in, in that famous musical, Children Have to Be Taught? They have to be taught mm -hmm. to hate. And so this yeah. is a, an area that I really feel we need to talk more about. We need to do more about. We can't just sit back. And there have been lots of times in history when we've been at that place, but I think right now it's like talking to people at, at Gill Institute, our therapist, how are we going to face this differently? How do we take more action and take a stand and be more visible? This has got to come from somewhere. And if you don't do it, then you're part of the problem. So now since you brought that up, I'd like to ask hard questions. So you had that great reflective moment with that little boy. But if you're doing what we've talked about this hour and you're being the family play therapist, eventually, right, you got to feed that back to the parents. So the challenge for many therapists would be, especially those that are, are young or timid, how do you now have that dialogue with the parent or between the child and parent? Yeah. And I think that Actually, in that particular case, I did go to the parent and had one of those difficult conversations that <laughs> that happen and are really important to happen about, you know, I kind of wanted to understand a little bit about just what your experience has been with Chinese people, because I noticed that your son has some very particular ideas about that. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and we had a dialogue and finally the, the person was able to say she had had some very negative experiences and she had felt threatened by these, this particular uh, family that was taking care of her children at one time. And there was jealousy and this and that. And then we kind of started unpacking that and looking at where those ideas came from or well, is that really a complete statement to make? And, you know, some of the narrative therapy. So sounds like those have been these experiences. Have there been exceptions to that? Have there been other times when you've encountered? Anyway, and so you just go on with that dialogue. And I've done this also with uh, families from Central America and South America. I'm Hispanic myself, so I understand there's a certain historical premise to women are often disempowered or women are often uh, victimized and it's normalized in some way. That's another really important conversation. How did that get to be normal? You know, where did you first learn that that was okay to do? Where did you witness that? Um, what were the ideas? Where did they come from? And then just having a having a real conversation about 
Is that really something, for example, that you'd want for your child, for your daughter? Is that something that you think is a way to build a community? And then we start talking about what the alternatives to that would be. But these conversations have to be done openly and just, you know, I think in a matter of fact way, we all grow up with these things, these narratives, and we all have to address these narratives and narratives at some point or another. And again, doing it in a play genogram kind of way, you can kind of look at and, and ask the person to find an object that might represent the way women are treated in their culture, that might represent the benefits or values that sometimes men have in a culture that women might not have, and have them represent them concretely. And then you can talk about and deepen that metaphor. And that sometimes makes it easier to do as well. But every time I've approached this, it's it's always been with a little bit of holding your breath and then just 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 allow it to be and practice it with friends and have these conversations among people that you know and trust um, so that you get comfortable doing it. But it's and sometimes the most difficult conversations are the most therapeutic. So in addition to being a kind of lifelong learner and having these social justice values, what this is other professional legacy questions, someone humble like yourself might have a hard time answering this, but you know, even now that you're semi-retired, but still so vital. When it's all said and done, how does Eliana Gill want to be remembered? I would say, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say as somebody who had a lot of energy, someone who invited people into a more playful way of connecting with each other, someone who was concerned about the connection that families have with each other and wanting to strengthen that and and look at habits that are built and how to dismantle some of them and create new ones that are better. But yeah, I guess energy, kind, playful, explorative, you know. Those are all great adjectives that I would use to describe you. Thank you so much. I have learned a lot. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And you're, again, you've done so much. If, if somebody wants to correspond with you, what is the best way to reach you? Oh, absolutely. I always say to people, I have insomnia, so I look at emails late at night. But it's elianagill at me.com, me.com. And yeah, I'm always available if people have questions or want to suggest things or anything at all. <laughs> Eli, back with you. So bringing to a close another successful installment of the Pioneer Series on the AAMFT podcast. What a down-to-earth and engaging individual. I have never met Ileana face-to-face, but boy, what a wealth of knowledge. I felt like I learned so much just talking to her, and certainly it's something, even at this stage of my career, kind of shoring up my skill set in, in play therapy is something I'm invested in doing, and hopefully many of you, after listening to that, will be as well. Some of the greatest stuff, too, came after I stopped rolling the tape. She was a administrative assistant for Murray Bowen, of all people, before she started her play therapy, family therapy career. What an amazing woman, an amazing story. Thank you so much, Ileana. So you like that? We have three seasons worth of installments of the AMFT podcast. If you're just listening to us and we like to go between pioneering interviews with legends in the field that have shaped the way we think about systemic individual couple and family therapy, along with the latest and greatest topics affecting you, the systemic 
practitioner. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts. You can go to aamft.org. Enhanced Knowledge tab, and you can see all of our back installments and play it right there from your browser, however you like to do it. We like to accommodate you. Also accommodate you by taking in your feedback. You can reach the AMFT. Follow us on Twitter. It's at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. I respond to each bit of listener feedback. You can email me at Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com and you can find me at EliCaram.com. E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.